Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Well, this morning I'm going to do something a little bit unusual. I'm actually going to give two introductions. The first introduction is going to be a little bit more general, and the second one will be more specific to the passage we're going to be looking at together this morning. So let me just start with this. Right now, we are in a series as a church in the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, and we've called this series A Better Way. And part of the reason we've called it a better way is because Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that is a very similar cultural context than we are in today. And he's showing them a better way how to be God's people in the world. Now, as Pastor Jeff reminded us last week and Jenny did this morning, right now, we are honestly in some of the more difficult chapters in all of 1 Corinthians and probably the whole Bible. And the reason is we are looking at things that fly right in the face of what our culture says today is right and wrong. We are talking about issues that are right in our face every single day. And quite honestly, it would be easier to avoid these passages. It sounds great to me. But as Jeff reminded us of last week, one of the values we have as a church is that we believe God has asked us to teach through entire books of the Bible, difficult passages and all, because the reason for that is we really believe that the Bible is the compass for how we live as Christians. One of the reasons I love these banners up here, it shows us how to live as God's people in this world. Now, of course, that's not always going to be popular because sometimes the Bible goes against what a culture says is right or wrong. But I've thought a lot about this, and I've come to this decision. At some point, all of us are going to have to make a choice about that. From what source am I going to base the decisions I make in life? What's the source going to be? Where is that going to come from? Where is my compass? If I base my decisions on what culture says, listen, my compass is going to be constantly changing. And besides that, here's something to think about. Who's to determine which culture is the best culture to determine what is right or wrong? Now, I know this is way more complicated than I can possibly address today because sometimes there are cultural components that we need to look at as we're seeking to understand the scriptures. But for many of the things that we're faced with today, it literally comes down to, am I going to trust what God says in his word about these things? That decision is a decision, by the way, you will have to make. Your parents cannot make it for you. Is God's way the best way for me to live? I was struck by a quote in a book we're reading in our life group together by an author named Kenneth Boa that really sums this whole idea up for me. I put it up on the screen here. It says, it is always to our advantage to conform to his will because it leads to our highest good. Obedience to God produces joy and fulfillment. Disobedience produces sorrow and frustration. There is greater pain in disobedience than in faithfulness. Everything God asks of us is for our good. Everything he asks us to avoid is harmful. Now, I'll just tell the truth on myself here. I don't always believe that. I don't always believe that what God says is always for the best for me or the way to a satisfying, fulfilling, abundant life. You want to know why? Because I still sin. I still disobey, but I come back to this idea that is found in the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation that a life of obedience is the path to an abundant, joyful, fulfilled life. Now you're going, why is he saying all of this? Well, because 
At the end of the passage we're going to be looking at together this morning, Paul is going to give a list of actions that when done habitually and unremorsefully, without repentance, will keep a person from the kingdom of God. Those are his words, not mine. So included in this list we're going to see are things like sexual immorality, which is any sex outside of the covenant relationship between a husband and wife. There are going to be things like adultery, things like greed. We kind of skip over that one, but there's no hierarchy of sin here. Things like slander and things like the practice of homosexuality. What Paul is telling the Corinthians, and he's still telling us today, is that the way we think about our sexuality, the way we think about how we handle our money, the way we handle our relationships is sometimes going to be different than the way the culture you live in thinks about it. That was true in Corinth, and it's still true for us today. Now, obviously, that raises a lot of questions, but the problem I have is that list is not really the point of this passage this morning. This passage is about how we handle conflict together as the church. Now, the list plays a part in that, and we're going to see that, but the list is not what we're going to focus on. Because we want to be faithful to the text we have before us. However, I will just say this before we move on. Pastor Jeff is going to talk more about sexuality next week. You can see his little note inside of the bulletin there. Especially we're going to be talking about sexual immorality, which is really the word that encompasses all sexual sin. But because we also know the topic of homosexuality is in our face right now like never before... Perhaps you're wondering, how do we understand that as a church? Where do we stand? How should we think about it? How can I have help navigating through this difficult topic? And what I want to say is, though we have spoken on this before, the best resource we could point you to are two messages by a pastor named John Dixon. He lives in Australia. We've shared these before. We're going to make them available for you. Again, if this is something you just need some help navigating through, you can write down those links. If you can't get them down fast enough, you can just email us as a church. We'd be happy uh, to send them to you. I just want to say this is a very complicated issue. Christians have caused a lot of hurt, and so I'll say this very, hear me please. If you're looking for ammunition... You don't have the right heart in listening to those messages, and God would be concerned about that. If you're seeking to understand a difficult thing with sincerity and love, then we point you to this resource. And so that's my first introduction. And I got to be honest with you, my prayer this week is that we are now able to focus our attention on the passage that we have before us because I would say that this idea of conflict resolution is one of the most needed and relevant topics in the church today. Let me ask you a question. Will we have conflict in the church? Yep. Maybe you've noticed over the centuries we haven't handled that contact very well. Whether that means we avoid the conflict and let it fester or share our conflict with people who we're not in conflict with, we ever do that, that's called gossiping, perhaps, or whether it's just leaving the church angry and never dealing with it. When conflict is not handled well, it can do incredible damage to individuals and incredible damage to communities. I would say social media has only added to the pain and the hurt today. So how relevant of a question is this today? And the question is this, if you're on your notes, how do we handle conflict in a better way as a church? If conflict is natural, it's going to happen, how can we handle it in a better way? 
Hopefully this doesn't just apply, by the way, to how we do it in the church. It might apply in your families as well. Now, we're going to see in these passages that the Corinthians are not handling conflict well. In fact, what you've probably noticed by now, if you've been here in this series, is that the Corinthians are a master class on how not to do stuff. So like he's been doing in the first five chapters, Paul is going to call these Corinthian Christians up to something better. He is baffled by what's going on in the church. And just to cut to the chase, what's happening is that Christians are bringing other Christians to court and they're suing them instead of dealing with their conflict internally with one another. And so in chapter 6 here, as we start, he's going to call them up to something better. Specifically, he's going to do two things. He's going to remind them why We can deal with conflict in a better way. And then at the end, we'll talk about how we deal with conflict. So as we head into this passage, would you mind bowing your heads with me once again as we seek the Lord's will and direction? Oh, Lord, it's amazing to me still that a book that was written 2,000 years ago speaks so clearly to us still today. You truly are sovereign as we sang We pray as we talk about this much-needed subject today, conflict resolution, that you would open ears and hearts, that we would just not learn some more knowledge about this, but we would learn how to apply this in a way that makes a difference in our church, in our community, in our neighborhoods, and in our families. Only you can do that. We acknowledge that, and we ask you, in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul reminds them of four things here about why this isn't the right way to handle conflict, bringing another brother or sister to court here. Number one, he reminds them of their identity. He reminds them of their identity. Would you read verse one out loud with me on your notes there? It says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Now, in the Greek, that word dare is actually the first word in the text, which always means that's the most emphasized word. So in other words, how dare you? How dare you bring another Christian to a secular court to settle your disputes? Now, one thing I need to say right up top here is that Paul is talking specifically about what we would call civil lawsuits, not about criminal cases. Paul is not attacking the need for human government and legal systems and courts and justice. In fact, in Romans 13, Paul writes that God has ordained those things. And we are to submit to those things as Christians. And so listen, for things like treason or murder or rape, those are criminal activities and absolutely should be brought to court. But in this case, what he's addressing are petty cases, petty disputes that are almost certainly centered around greed. You see, what happened in Corinth is oftentimes the wealthy people would sue the poorer people knowing that the advantage and the wealth and the power that they had would guarantee a victory in the court. So that was happening in the city of Corinth And it had begun to leak into the church at Corinth as well. The best way to think about this is sins versus crimes. As Christians, we call the police if there's a crime. Sad I need to say this, but sometimes churches have tried to deal with crimes internally that needed the intervention of the authorities. No, God is a God of justice. He is opposed to covering up crimes. But on trivial matters, on minor infractions, on conflicts... We should be able to deal with it internally. And the first reason he says why is because of our identity. 
because of our identity, our new identity in Christ. Literally, Paul calls them once again, this is about the third or fourth time, he refers to the Corinthians as saints. That's the word at the end of verse one when our version says the Lord's people. Now, I don't know what you think of a saint. I think we have a skewed view of what a saint is. A saint is not some super class of Christian as we've talked about many, many times. All of us who have named the name of Jesus Christ are now declared saints before him. Literally, the word saint just means set apart ones. When we come to faith in Christ, he sets us apart to be different. And so because our identity is as God's saints, here's the connection here that the way we live the way we live in this world is going to be different than the way other people live we've been set apart to be different friends this is really the context of that list at the end of these verses in verses 9 and 10 if you're in your bible there it says or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived wrongdoers are by the way people who continue in wrongdoing Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is arguing here that things like ongoing sexual immorality, as we saw last week in chapter 5, and greed, which we're seeing here in chapter 6, that's not how saints live. We have been given a new identity in Christ We have been set apart for God. We are new people. In fact, look at what he says in verse 11. Right after he gives that list, he says, and that is what some of you, what's the next word? Were. I can relate to that. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is an argument Paul loves using. You see it in almost every single one of his letters to call us to higher living, right? He reminds us of our identity and then how our identity shapes how we live. I talk about this at our home sometimes. My kids love it when I bring this up and I'm being sarcastic right now. But I'll say something like, hey, we're Patsyas. Reminding them of their identity. And then I'll say, and Patsyas always give their best. And I get the eye roll. But it's the same thing Paul is doing here, right? We're saints. We've been set apart. We've been washed and sanctified and justified. Therefore, as a result, we are going to live differently. Live out the identity you've been given. The Corinthians have forgotten our identity. So instead of living like a community of saints, what's happening? They're being conformed to the culture around them. And Paul says, that doesn't line up with who you are now in Christ. Listen, it's very simple. If Jesus has saved you and now lives in you, what's going to happen? Slowly, over time, your life is going to begin to look more like his life. What does an apple tree produce? Apples. What does a Christian life produce? It produces a life that begins to look more and more like Jesus. If you're following on your notes, our new identity launches us into a new lifestyle. Ephesians 4.1 is my favorite verse about this. In three chapters of Ephesians, Paul reminds the church of who they are, their new identity in Christ. And you have this incredible transition. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, what? Live a life 
worthy of the calling you have received. You're saints. You've been set apart. Now live that way. Live that way. Paul knows that's not going to happen like this. You know that as well, don't you? I know that as well. It's an ongoing process. But that's why he's writing this letter. That's why we have the word of God to show us how to live. Second thing Paul does to show why handling conflict this way is not according to God's plan is he reminds them of their destiny. Their destiny. Here, quite honestly, we come to some of the most mysterious and amazing verses in all of the Bible. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Uh, Nope, did not, actually. How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? This blows my mind. But one day, as his saints, as his set-apart ones, when God comes again, when Jesus sets up his eternal kingdom, somehow, some way, he's going to involve us in the process of judging both the spiritual and the earthly realm. i got to be honest, I don't know exactly what that looks like. Daniel 7 gives us a little bit of a hint looking towards this day. It says, until the ancient of days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. What is holy people? Saints. What are saints? Set apart ones. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. At the end of time, when God makes this world right, when he balances the scales of justice, is somehow, some way, he's going to include us in that whole process. That's astonishing to me, but let's not miss Paul's major point here. We can get off on a rabbit trail pretty easily. His point is, listen, if that's your destiny, if you're going to one day be judging saints, how can you not handle these minor disputes that pop up in the church? It's an argument from greater to lesser, right? If you're a parent, you use this one all the time. Mom, Dad, we want a dog. Mm. Well, first take care of this goldfish then perhaps we'll talk about a dog in the same way, right? Listen, handle these conflicts in the church because one day you're going to be standing with Jesus in his kingdom. How can you not deal with this? If you're on your notes there, in light of our future, we should handle present conflicts. Third thing Paul does is reminds them of their witness. He reminds them of their witness. Look at verse 5. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. He's marveling at the fact that they couldn't find even just one person to mediate this conflict within the church. This must have really stung the Corinthians. Because if you've been with us in this series, what is the thing the Corinthians prided themselves on more than anything else? Their wisdom. And Paul says, you have nobody wise enough who couldn't have handled this within your own church? The reason he's so angry is because by taking their disputes to public court, the church is showing that they're really no different than the world around them. And if 1 Corinthians is about anything, it's about how we are to be different than the world around us. Essentially, they're displaying to the entire city of Corinth that they don't believe that the gospel has the resources for us to handle conflict in the church. Paul says, that's not a good witness. I mean, can you picture it? 
The judge sitting in the secular court going, oh great, here come those Christians again. That's not the witness that he wants them to have. And so here's what he's saying. Before you take your petty conflicts public, and in our day and age, that might not mean court. That might mean posting it on Facebook or Instagram or telling your friend who's not a part of the conflict. Before you do that, the first thing you say is, at what cost will I pursue this? Not just financially, but what is this going to do with my friendship with this other Christian? What will this do to the witness of the gospel? What will this do to our church? What will this do to the name of Jesus? How will this appear to those outside of the Christian faith? And you look at it and you go, is this worth it? Is this worth taking this public and outside? Paul is saying this, and I is saying this. You and I need to think about our witness because the world is watching You know, the world doesn't really care what our mission statement is. Did you know that? What they're watching is our lives. Your neighbors, your family, your friends are looking at you and they're going, do I want that? Do I want to be like that? Do I want to live like that? And friends, I'll just say, the way we handle conflict, that's one of the ways that we can be a shining light in this world. His point is not that we hide our dirty laundry. We're going to fight. We're going to have conflict. That's okay. What matters is how we deal with it. And friends, we have an opportunity. If you're on your notes, we have an opportunity to demonstrate the power of grace. Oh, does our world need to see conflict handled well today? There's so much anger and hatred right now. What would it look like if we demonstrated grace with one another? If we handled conflict well, I think that would be an incredible witness. Final reminder Paul gives the Corinthians is he reminds them that they are family. Look at verses 7 and 8. In fact, read verse 7 on your notes with me there. It says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Verse 8. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. The key word there being brothers and sisters, according to Paul. The fact that they're taking this to court, that they have civil litigation, means they've already lost. It doesn't matter who wins the case, because there's no winner when a family fights like this. These verses reveal that he's not just angry that they've aired their dirty laundry to the public here. He's angry that they've resorted to this kind of an extreme within a family relationship. Brothers and sisters pitted against one another, adopting a cutthroat attitude, not an attitude of love and selflessness, which is how God designed his family to function. If you're reading through the New Testament with us right now as a church, the chapter we read today was John 13, or maybe you'll read it tomorrow, where Jesus says these words, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure that loving one another is one of the most often commanded things in all of Scripture. Why? Because if we demonstrate the kind of love Jesus demonstrated to us, it's going to look different than the world Looks, if you're following on your notes as a family, we should model love. Paul's going to talk a lot more about this in 1 Corinthians 13, but as we can see right here, this church is not demonstrating love for one another. And so Paul is calling them up to that. And so as we apply this text, I think it leads to this question. Okay, 
If that's why we shouldn't handle conflict that way, how do we handle conflict well in the church? As I think about my identity and my destiny and my witness and the fact that we are family together, what is a better way to resolve conflict? As we close, let me offer you two suggestions I pull from this passage. The first is follow the Matthew 18 principle. Follow the Matthew 18 principle. In Matthew 18, we see very clearly how Jesus tells us to handle sin and conflict in the church. Jeff referenced it last week in his message on church discipline because of sin. But again, this speaks to conflict as well. It's not just about sin. Jesus explains very clearly here that if somebody has sinned against you or another person in the church that you know about, or if you have a conflict with someone in the church, there's three steps that you can go and try to resolve it. Step one is found in verse 15. It says, if a brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So what's step one? If you're on your notes, go directly to the person. Go directly to the person. Don't go to your friend. Don't go to social media. Don't just leave the church angry. Don't ignore it either. You practice grace and truth. Or as the Bible says, speak the truth in love. Go directly to the person and speak the truth in love. Let's take a pause here. That word love doesn't mean much to us anymore today, I don't think. I think it means sentimentality. It means emotions. But friends, here's what true love is. True love is not ignoring conflict. True love is willing to have the hard conversations with people you're in conflict with. Why? because you want their best for them and you want the best for your relationship. But here's the key. How we do that is what it all comes down to. It's how we do it that is gonna be received either well or not well. And that's why on the back of your notes there, once again, I've included the matrix there, the grace and truth matrix. We've had this three weeks in a row. Hopefully you're starting to get used to it a little bit, right? I'll just say, If you're thinking about how to do conflict and you're really excited about going and having that conversation with that person, what quadrant might you be living in at that point? Probably lower right. Like if you can't wait to hammer somebody and nail them, then you're probably not in grace and truth. On the other hand, if you just want to ignore all conflict in your life, you're living over on the left side somewhere, right? And what Jesus is calling us to is a better way. It's the way of love. It's the way of grace and truth, upper right. So let's get very practical here. Let's do some training. Let's take an example. I want you to use your imagination what each one of these four quadrants might look like in conflict. So I'll just think of a conflict. Let's see something that's never, ever happened to me. Let's say you're watching TV and your wife is trying to speak to you and you're not paying attention. So put yourself in the shoes of the wife at that moment, and let's look at these four quadrants here. Uh, What would lower left look like? Checking out. You want to tell your person you're sitting next to, what would that look like? What would it look like to just check out in that situation? I think it looks like just walking away and letting it fester. He always does this. He can't, he's so sick of this. And you just let it fester. And then five hours later, your husband's wondering, what is wrong with her? (laughs) Okay, upper left. It's a little different. What would that maybe look like? I would say it looks like passive aggressiveness, and none of us ever use this, right? 
well, I guess your TV is more important than me. Um, I'm not sure where you're expecting that to go after that, but it's probably not going to go well. Lower right, this is one we're all familiar with. It's when we use the you word. You never listen to me. You always do that. And then upper right, what, what would be a better way? What would be grace and truth? Do you have an imagination for this? We tell this to premarital couples all the time. You first take responsibility for yourself and how you're feeling. I feel blank. I feel sad. I feel hurt. I feel lonely when I try to talk to you and you're watching TV and it doesn't seem like you're paying attention. That's way better than you always do that or you always do this. As soon as you say you always something, I'm immediately going to be on the defensive. Whoever you're saying that to is immediately going to be on the defensive and there's no chance for conflict resolution. But if you take responsibility for this is how I'm feeling right now, I'd say only a very callous person would not be willing to enter into that conversation at that point. So that's grace and truth. Now listen, this isn't some magic pill, that, that put this little thing here. Sometimes when you use this, people are still going to receive it as call out, right? They're still going to say, well, I don't want to hear anything. Why? Because none of us like to be confronted. But here's all I'll just say. You can't control somebody else's reaction. What you can control is how you talk to other people. And that's what this tool is really about. So the second step is really what Paul has been talking about in this passage. Several times, I think you've noticed, he said, why didn't you take it to someone else in the church instead of going to court? Or is there no one in the entire church who could listen in an unbiased way to your conflict and offer guidance and wisdom? Jesus says the same thing in verse 16 of Matthew 18. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, if conflict is too great to be handled by the two of you, if you're on your notes, then bring another brother or sister into the conversation. That sounds so awful to us as Americans because we love to hide our stuff. We are so individualized, but when the scripture was written, it had a vision that we were the body of Christ, the family of God. And so there's no shame to bringing somebody else in the family of God into a conflict that needs to be resolved. You should look for somebody. It doesn't have to be a professional attorney. It doesn't have to be one of the pastors even. It just has to be somebody who loves the Lord, has a sense of justice and impartiality, has a sense of biblical knowledge, is filled with the Spirit, maybe has the spiritual gift of wisdom. This is so radical to us today. I don't want other people to know that I'm in conflict with another person in the church, and so what do we do? We just keep it to ourselves and we let it fester. But as Paul notes here again, there's no shame in having conflict. It's natural, it's normal, but the way we deal with it That's what's important. And as a family, we want what's best for one another in our family. And so we're going to invite other family members to help us when we need it. So let me just summarize this so far. First thing he's saying is that if a Christian and a Christian have a conflict, and it's a secondary matter, a disputable issue, don't just rush off to court or the court of a public opinion or to your friend. Don't just leave angry. First, try to resolve it together, practicing grace and truth. And if that doesn't work, bring somebody else in 
who you both respect and love. Now, in the case where there is sin involved, and after those two steps are unsuccessful and a person has an unrepentant heart, it comes to step three. We saw this last week, Matthew 18, verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Jeff talked all about that last week. If you missed it, you can go listen to that message. But step three, if you're on your notes, if it's a sin and continues, bring it to the church for discipline. I might also say here, when it comes to conflict, there's so many caveats we need to mention sometimes. It gets overwhelming, but sometimes reconciliation is not possible in a relationship. It just isn't. It wouldn't be wise It wouldn't be advisable. Maybe that person is no longer here. But the idea that we're getting at here is similar to what Paul says in Romans 12, 18. Would you read this on the screen with me? It says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's the idea. If it's possible. And not always is. It isn't always. Sometimes you've got to set up boundaries. But if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's God's heart for us. It's different. It's different. The second way Paul talks about handling conflict is going to mess with you even more. Because we are Americans. And as Americans, we love our rights. What is Paul's approach here, though? Have you noticed it in verse 7, the second one? He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? It's like nails on a chalkboard. Now, again, I got to make a distinction here. I'm not talking about criminal behavior. I'm not talking about letting somebody abuse you, take advantage of you, being a doormat to them. We're talking about minor conflicts, disagreements. And Paul says, like Jesus does, if you're on your notes, sometimes it's better to turn the other cheek. Ugh. Ugh. This so flies against our culture where we demand our rights, but maybe that's exactly Paul and Jesus' point. We're not citizens of this culture. We're citizens of a different kingdom where our king modeled this very same thing for us. He went to a cross that he didn't deserve, and he was mocked and ridiculed and laughed at and beaten and crucified, and he could still be there going, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If Jesus could do that, and if Jesus has now called me, who I was once an enemy, into his kingdom as a friend, then there are times when getting my rights are not as important as relating rightly to the people in my life. As Jesus has forgiven me, so too I can forgive others. I'll never forget reading a story about 10 years ago by a Chinese Christian named Watchman Nee. And he tells the story of two brothers who owned a rice paddy. And in a rice paddy, you have to like, when the rain comes, you have to figure out how the irrigation system is going to flow down into each of the paddies. And so you have to do a lot of work to make sure that works right. And what happened is their neighbor at night would come and change the irrigation system so it would come and water his rice paddy and not water the rest of their rice paddies. And so these two brothers were Christians. And at first they just thought, we just need to endure this. 
We just need to let them do it. We need to be wronged. And so they went through this stage of a couple days where this kept happening. They would go back up. They'd change it. He'd go back at night, and he'd let the water back into his rice paddy field. And they weren't feeling any peace about it. They thought, well, if we endure it, that's the way of Jesus. Uh, We're supposed to have some peace. They weren't. So they went to a Christian brother who was more experienced, and I'm going to read it. He said, you have not done enough, nor have you endured enough. You should first fill the field of the person who has stolen your water, then you fill your own field. Go and try this and see whether you have the peace within. And so they both agreed. The next day they got up earlier than usual and they actually filled the field of the person who was stealing their water before they filled their own field. Strangely enough, I'm reading this, they became more and more joyful as they filled that person's field. When they came to fill their own field, they had peace in their hearts. They were at peace with the thought of allowing that person to steal their water. After two or three days of doing this, the person who had stolen their water came to apologize, saying, if this is Christianity, I want to hear about it. How radical would it be? How radical would it be if at times we just turned the other cheek? I wonder if this was our attitude, what kind of a witness we would have in this world. I'll just say to you, I can't do it. It doesn't come naturally. But that's not the point. I'm not doing this in my flesh. I'm doing it through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us because I have been set apart as a saint. So as we close this morning, I'll ask two questions and leave some space for us for a time of reflection. This is a message that needs some reflection. This is a message that we need to allow the Spirit of God to open up our hearts. It's not just about knowledge. It's about application. So application one, who am I in conflict with? Have you been cold to a brother or sister in Christ? Are there certain people in your heart that you don't want to forgive? We're going to allow some time for the Lord to reveal that to us, to speak to us about that. And then second, how can I pursue reconciliation? What is it going to look like for us in light of God's word today to pursue reconciliation with our brothers and sisters? If that's not possible, reconciliation, or if it's not advisable, then what does it look like to seek forgiveness or to offer forgiveness? Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not declaring what a person did is right. It's simply letting go of the debt that you're holding over them. So let's... Allow God to speak to us now. He's spoken to us in his word. And now we want him to speak to us in his, with his spirit. Lord, who are we holding a grudge against? How do we apply what you've given us today? to you that this way of dealing with conflict is unnatural to us. In fact, it's impossible apart from your spirit in us. But in the same way that you loved us, we want to be people who love others. 
We want to do that because of the new identity you've given us in Christ. We are set apart, washed, sanctified, justified. We want to do that because of the destiny we have with you. We want to do that because of our witness in this world, that we would be lights that shine bright, and this is one way we can do that. And we want to do it well because we're family. So we ask you to teach us how to love one another as you have loved us. Let us not just hear the word of God today. Let us do the word of God. And so if there's anybody you've brought into our mind, let us be bold enough and courageous enough to pursue reconciliation. And if that's not possible, forgiveness. We need your help. We acknowledge that and admit that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, instead of singing a song this morning, we thought I would have you stand, and we're going to declare a prayer that it was written hundreds of years ago by Francis of Assisi. Some of you are familiar with this prayer, but let this be our benediction today. Let's walk out of this room with these words on our lips. If you need prayer after the service, we'll be down front and more than willing to pray with you. But can we declare this prayer out loud together? It says... Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.